or two. We're switching gears a little bit here. I had a conversation earlier this week with one of the brothers, and we were talking about persecution. And he had listened to a pastor who was in Turkey. And he'd been over there for 18, 20 years or so in that neighborhood anyway. And um, one day the, the authorities showed up and arrested him and his wife. They incarcerated them. After a couple of weeks, his wife was released, and he was kept for another two years. He said he had been persecuted before, had been shot at, you know, of course, the names and verbal types of things happening over the period of being there. And he thought he was pretty much ready for persecution, but he found out after in the first year that he wasn't even close to being ready. For, for the kind of treatment and what happened to him in the first year within his own soul. The first year was a, just a real breaking and a humbling to the point where he almost didn't make it. And then the second year was the year that God just built him back up and strengthened him. And what obviously is the powerful testimony of what went on in this pastor's name, and his name escapes me for the moment. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> Thank you. Andrew Brunson, and he has put together a series, you can find it online, of six teachings about the persecution, and the thing that struck my heart and why I'm doing this today is we have felt for some time now there's something coming in the near future that we need to be prepared for. And his conviction is pretty strong the Western church is not even close to being ready for what's coming and per the persecution that's coming upon the church. And so my responsibility as a pastor is to prepare the flock. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Now, God will give us the grace. No one should be alarmed at this. We know that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, you know, it's one of those great and precious promises that you, the ones you don't really care about so much, right? But we're going to suffer for righteousness' sake, as we'll see here. And so I felt it was my responsibility to, you know, present a perspective on suffering. You know, the early church went through a time of persecution, the very first century church, and it lasted for several years. And, but God give them grace. And so whatever trial, whatever might come upon the Western church and our Western culture here, God is sufficient for us. He can get us through it. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And again, this is one of those verses we wish it would not have been written. But it is, and it's there. We understand that we're supposed to believe with all our hearts in the Lord, trust Him. But why did they have to include that suffering part, right? So suffering in the world is something that's uh, not new in our generation. It's been going on since the fall of man. But Christianity is really the only theology that expresses the worldview 
uh, really that can address the subject of suffering in a, and pain in a rational manner uh, that gives people hope. None, none of the other religions really give hope in the midst of pain and sorrow or can explain it. At least we have a perspective. We may not appreciate it. We may not like it. But at least we have a perspective given to us in the Bible because the Bible is full of it, full of explanations, full of stories of people who suffered tremendously for their faith. Then, of course, we have those who say, well, there's really no God anyway, because if there was a loving God in heaven, he wouldn't allow this pain and suffering to go on. Why does he allow it to exist if he's so all-powerful and God gets criticized for that? Well, for those of us who believe, we understand that what God made in the beginning was all good. And for those who are unaware of that, I would like to draw your attention to Genesis 3, and you can read that for yourself, what happened there. But our first parents gave in to the temptation to serve themselves rather than the will of God. And so that choice against the will of God brought the curse upon mankind. And that's the cause for human suffering. It was human choice that introduced sorrow and pain into this realm. God did not introduce it. Mankind did. And so we're just thankful that God can intervene and his interventions can sort of lighten the plague of the curse of sin. God has the power to work all things together for good, for his greater purposes. In her book, Elizabeth Elliot's book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, uh, she's stated this, God has a loving purpose. He can transform something terrible. I have that quote, by the way. If you want to pull that screen up, someone, if you want to write it down. God has a loving purpose. He can transform something terrible into something wonderful. Suffering is never for nothing. And this is an important perspective to have. When sorrow and pain and sufferings are experienced, our responsibility is simply to commit that suffering, that pain, that sorrow to the Lord. Because when we do that, and ultimately God can use that to work for good. Now that is an amazing thing to contemplate. But then again we go to another scripture, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, nor your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, we think God thinks like we do. <laughs> We'd be wrong in thinking that. <laughs> and aren't you glad? He's really in control. But when this area of suffering and sorrow and pain come up, we should really reflect upon the stories that are in the scripture because they will bring comfort to our souls. Think about the grace that was revealed through Joseph's life. His brothers were going to murder him. I mean, they were going to take him out out of jealousy. And yet God preserved his life. He delivered him out of his hands and sent him as a slave into a foreign land. That choice that the brothers were allowed to make brought a lot of sorrow and pain into Joseph's life. Would, and that would probably be an understatement. 
The Bible tells us in Psalms that he was locked with fetters and chains. You don't see that in Genesis, but that's the way they handled those that were incarcerated in prison. That choice not only led to pain in Joseph's life, but also into his brother's life. We kind of kind of forget about those guys that 20 years, but their lives were controlled by that guilt, the turmoil and the broken relationships that went on with the family. They were now distanced, as it were, from their father because they lied to him. There's a, there's a wall there, the invisible wall, a breakdown because, because of the guilt, because of the lie. But through all those sufferings, over time, and this is the part that's hard for us, over time, God works his incredible plan. Joseph came to understand that God used this to preserve life. God sent him ahead and used this evil thing that was perpetrated upon him to save life, his very, the very lives of his brothers and his father as they would be brought to Egypt. What they intended for evil, God used for good. And that is a, in a very important perspective for you and I to possess and to have within our hearts. We have to embrace the fact, whether we see it or understand it, is that God really is in control of everything. And I say this in one of the areas that really I struggle with is in our present day is what's going on in human trafficking. When God unleashes judgment upon those people, it's going to be horrendous. And it should be. And I think we should pray that that stops and it ends and that he does move upon that. That is unnerving to me. It's overwhelming to me. But he is in complete control and this is hard. How can that possibly work out for good? I don't know. But I trust him. I trust him. We, we may not always agree with the sovereign rule but it doesn't change the fact that he's in control. He knows what he's doing. You have to submit to the fact that even though our opinions may differ than with God's opinion about things, he's never wrong. And we're almost always wrong. It's just best to roll over your sorrows and your disappointments to him. And trust everything to him. When you get to the place where you don't know, you just trust him. I believe to have a, we need a, a, a proper perspective on persecution and suffering. Because I think it will be critical to our witness as followers of Christ. It, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, Let's read uh, verses 18 through 25. I won't expound uh, on every verse here, but some thoughts. Second, First Peter chapter 2, picking it up in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. This is commendable, 
because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, and when he suffered he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We won't spend any time on submitting to employers or just simply to respect them. And if they're harsh, just endure the grief or find another job. (laughs) You know, you can always do that. Just make sure that's what the Lord wants you to do, right? But notice how Jesus suffered there in verse 21. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He spoke no guile or anything in deception to deflect the pain or to escape the situation. He stayed true to, to, to himself and to the Lord. He did not return in kind with hurtful insults that were hurled at him. Could you imagine the vulgar accusations that were coming from those Roman soldiers as they beat him and mocked and scourged him? I mean, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, The Bible says, so he opened not his mouth. You know, someone threatens me or says something mean to me, you know, I want to pipe right up and get right back in their face, right? That's the natural man. But God and the Spirit doesn't want us to respond in that way. And rather, Jesus committed and he handed over his pain and sorrow to the ultimate authority, the judge, the righteous judge. And that's our example for us. And I think that's what Peter's doing here. The early church, whom Peter was ministering to, they were suffering tremendous persecution. People were dying for their faith choice. He's using Jesus as an example to give us a perspective on our own sufferings. Nobody gets, as has been said, you know, nobody gets out of here alive. And nobody gets out of this life without pain and sorrow and suffering. There's no exceptions. But it's how we see it and how we deal with it that makes the difference. Persecution and suffering will either make you bitter or better. And really, only one letter separates the two. It's the I. If you can get the I out of your sufferings, you'll be the better for it. Think of this. Jesus suffered in his earthly body, obviously, but it was not without a purpose. God used it. Hebrews 5, 8 says, Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Are we greater than our master? We are not. Jesus, I believe, is trying to teach his followers, that'd be you and me, 
those who love him, to have the same love that he had that led him to sacrifice his life. So it led him to, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God wants his children to learn unconditional love. To become good at forgiving others from the heart of their trespasses against us. You, can't, you cannot give something you don't have. If you haven't had your sins forgiven, it's going to be difficult for you to forgive others. I think that's why some people have a rough time forgiving other people because they simply are laden with sin themselves. But understand, as we are forgiven, we're to extend that. Jesus actually said that was prerequisite for anyone to have their own sins forgiven if they first forgive others their trespasses. So it's a big deal. Jesus wants us to express unconditional love and become good forgivers. And actually, that's why I think that's part of what you learn in marriage, isn't it? You got to learn how to forgive your spouse. They have to learn how to forgive you. Paul had expresses his perspective on suffering substantially through the New Testament. In Romans 8.18, for example, he says, For I reckon the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. So that, that's, a, that's an important perspective. You can think of the worst possible pain and sorrow you can experience in this life. And I, again, I go to human trafficking. That, to me, is like, I just can't handle it when I think what's happening to little people. It's unthinkable crimes. And yet that crime and that suffering and that pain isn't come close to being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. We do know this about the nature and character of God. He is more than fair and equitable. So to whom someone suffers greatly, the reward on the other side and the comfort is going to be far outweigh what, they were taken, what was taken from them in this life. God is fair. God is just. We leave it with him. 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. Therefore, do not lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, yet not the inward uh, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction is but for a moment. It is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Again, a great perspective on suffering and pain. He considers these trials light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that's going to be revealed. So let's visit the responsibilities that we have as believers to be faithful to the Lord regardless of the suffering we may endure. Our time on earth is short. The time of Christ's coming is near. Let's turn to chapter 4, 1 through 6. Again, Peter is writing to these people who are scattered throughout 
the Roman Empire who were under severe persecution. For since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. For he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. We walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and the abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you don't run with them to the same flood of dissipation. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) And they speak evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. We have to remember this, that Christ suffered for us. He's the model of endurance. Think about when he was here in the flesh, what he had to put up with. I mean, could you imagine being around everybody, all your friends and all your relatives were just fallen, selfish human beings? You think he could find fault with anybody? <laughs> yeah. I mean, here he is, Mr. Perfect, right? I mean, that was amazing to me, the grace that he showed. That was, he had to endure that. I mean, it, the scripture speaks nothing of that. But he had such great love, perfect love. He was a model of endurance. He was a substitute for our sin here. And as our shepherd, he was perfected through these sufferings. We are going to suffer through various trials. We're going to be tested by fire. We're going to be wrongfully treated. This is what he went through. We are to do good and maybe suffer for it. We're to suffer for righteousness' sake. We're to commit ourselves to God. We're not to suffer as an evildoer. We should not be ashamed of suffering for the gospel. We should remember it's only for a little while. That's important. He tells us there that we're to arm ourselves actually with the same mind. The same mind. Someone read through the scriptures there, Philippians 2. That is the mind of Christ. He had no selfish ambition. He was not self-willed. He was never inconsiderate of what others might be going through. He had lowliness of mind, meek. He understood his own status, and that's why he didn't think it was anything to be equal with God. He wasn't worried about his reputation as, Oh, people aren't going to recognize that I'm God. Never entered his mind. He esteemed others. He was others-centered, not self-centered. He had no idea of really care about his reputation. In fact, that's what we, you see that right out of the gate. Matthew chapter 1. Four women are mentioned in the lineage, and they're all of questionable character. He's right out of the gate that, in the New Testament, it's not about reputation at all. I think this is what really got the, the rich, run ruler into trouble. 
He was self-righteous, obviously. He was concerned about his self-image. I mean, what's not to like about his life? He's rich, he's young, and he's in charge. What more could you possibly want? Well, I want to maintain that. You know, once you get in power, you want to stay in power, right? Self-righteous, his self-image, self-reliant. wonder how many people he climbed over to get to the top, right? Self-rule. He's really concerned about whether, what are other people going to say about me? What do they see in me? What do they believe about me? See, it's not about self. And this is, this is what being a follower of Christ is about. It's not about us anymore. It's about him. It's about dying to self, being unconscious of self. A lot of you guys do well. A lot of you ladies do well at this until we look in the mirror. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to, oh, especially as you get older. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> See, you, if you adopt, as we should, the mind of Christ, that will take you down the road of true spirituality if you're willing to travel it as Jesus and make Jesus your guide. It's going to be a, a great experience. Verses 7 through 11, why? Because the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it one to another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And if anyone speaks, let him speak. As the oracles of God. And if anyone ministers, let him do it in the, with the ability which God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter wants those who are suffering, those that are in pain, experiencing sorrow, to have the mind that's focused on serving and ministering to others. This is the big lesson about the nature of Christ. He is others-centered, not self-centered. Why do you call certain people? Do you just call them because you want something? Because you know they can deliver to you what you're seeking? When's the last time you thought about what they might need or what you could give them. See, it's just the way we are. I'm not throwing stones at anybody. We all have to deal with a self-centered nature. Jesus was focused on you when he went to the cross. Isn't it amazing? That's how other-centered he was. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He knew he knew, he understood what would happen if he was obedient. See, if we're obedient in our sufferings, good things are going to result. That's the promise of God. It's, our suffering is not without purpose. Our pain is not without purpose. God uses it. Think about it. When we overcome difficulties, there's a transformation that takes place in our heart. We become something different. There's some things we cannot learn or certain things can never happen in our nature, in our character, unless we go through a struggle, unless we go through a trial. When we face difficulties, they present to us choices that must be made. And when difficulties develop, we 
should have the confidence and the faith that God's going to see us through this. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I trust you, Lord. That's sort of our motto. Epicurus stated, the greater the difficulty, the more glory and surmounting of it. Skillful pilots gain their reputation from storms and tempests. You'd never become a really good admiral on the sea unless you faced a few storms. And see, this is what storms and trials and tempests and our trials of life that make us better pilots. We know how to steer through it. We know how to navigate through troubled waters. So he just tells us to be serious here, to be watchful. We need to be paying attention, to be prayerful, to be loving, to be hospitable, to minister, be a servant, be a good steward. It's not just about our resources. You know, sometimes people use, well, I'm just being a good steward, but they use that to, just to be stingy. God gives you what he gives you so that you can be a blessing to others. The time is, the end is coming upon us. There are more days behind us than in front of us. Rest assured. The prophet and the apostle John recorded some of the Lord's final prophetic words in Revelation. Revelation 22, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To give to every man according to his work. Jesus is the best accountant ever. You know, what, what's on your ledger? What's he going to be reading? How did you serve? How did you give? Something to think about. His final message was this, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. And so, finally, in these last few verses here, verses 12 through 19, Jesus, this is important, Jesus expected us to suffer. That's not a popular message in the church today. You want to get saved and go to heaven? Oh, yeah. Uh, you, want to, you want to suffer for your faith? Then it seems like it should be mutually exclusive, doesn't it? It's not. It's mutually inclusive. You believe, you will also suffer. John sixteen thirty three. before we read this, says Jesus, his final words to the apostles. These things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. I'm glad you said those things. You see, in reality, persecution is the devil's tool to change your mind about God's goodness. God doesn't really care. He's really not that kind because if he really cared and he was really kind, he wouldn't let you go through this. See, he, he wants you to do what he did. And what did he do? He turned his back on God. In our times of suffering, I think we're weakened in our mind and our thoughts. And our resolve to be loyal to God can be challenged at that point in time. But we must stand firm. And I think, above all things, persecution is one of those trials that all we have to do is compromise and it'll go away. 
Think about what they were facing in the early church. Oh, come on, man. Just, just bend the knee, offer the incense, and say that Caesar is Lord, and you can go home. You do that, you go, you're free, right? Are you really free if you, if you compromise? You might be free for the moment in the temporal life that we have here, but you're going to stand before a God who you denied before man. And what did Jesus say? If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. If you proclaim me before men, I'll proclaim you before my Father and his angels in heaven. It's all out of our mouth that it matters. See, I think persecution is one of the trials that reveals the heart like no other trial. It forces you, it forces out from within what your convictions really are. It comes right to the surface, doesn't it? See, all these neutral positions that we try to maybe maintain in our lives, they'll all be disclosed. You may not have known that they were in there, but God knows that they're in there and he understands that you need to see that and so thus he allows trials and tribulations to bring out what's there. You know, it's the full cup that when a bump in a road is hit is the contents of the cup are revealed. It spills out. So God allows us to go through bumpy rides on occasion to spill out what's really in our hearts. Persecution will reveal bitterness or it will promote growth in grace. There is no neutral ground in persecution. Something's got to give and something will give. Beloved, don't think it's strange, verse 12, concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that the partake and partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be also glad with exceeding joy. And if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. And on their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner, in this matter. For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those of us who suffer according to the will of God commit our souls to him in doing good as to the faithful creator. OpendoorUSA.org is a ministry that tracks persecution and around the world they've been doing it for quite a while this is this is since the beginning of the year 312 million christians in the world are experiencing high levels of persecution and discrimination for their choice to follow jesus one in seven christians in the world experience high level 
of persecution. 5,898 Christians have been killed for their faith-related reasons. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked. 4,765 believers have been detained without trial. They were arrested and sentenced or imprisoned. 3,829 are the number of Christians abducted for faith-related reasons. Do you think we're going to escape any kind of all the persecution that's going on in the world? Do you think the Christians in the United States, in the Western culture, we're just going to pass right on by? I don't know if I'm ready. But I tell you one thing, I want to be ready. Because when that time comes, you cannot pull from a vacuum. You cannot pull faith from a vacuum. You have to have been walking in grace to absorb and to receive that amount of grace that will be necessary to endure such pain and sorrow. We see some of it happening with people coming through the doors and, you know, gunning brothers and sisters down. We see that happen. That's happened in our country. But it's not like the rest of the world. It's a constant, constant attack. And I shared this because I feel like my responsibility is to at least get us thinking in that way, get us praying in that way. Lord, make us ready. I don't want to be caught in unawares at all. I'd like to think I'd respond in a good way in a way that's glorifying to God, but I don't know that. I'm not going to assume I just got it all together. And I can, oh yeah, you know, probably, you know. I got machismo, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. You'll do, it because, you'll do it because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, everything that we do that glorifies God is under the inspiration and the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing within the flesh that, oh, you're such a cute little guy, you know. No, God doesn't see it that way. It's only as we are surrendered and allowed the Holy Spirit to, to control and move through our lives that, that matters. And the only way we're going to make it through persecution, sorrow and pain, and some of it, we, many of us have already been through a number of things in our life. How did we make it through? Because God gave us grace. Because we humbled ourselves before Him. Because we realized we couldn't make it without His involvement and through the smaller trials and tribulations that we've gone through we've learned how to just simply trust him and that's all we can do we just have to trust God that he'll give us what we need to make it through think about Jesus and this is I think the mindset we have to develop he's on his last trip to Jerusalem and the disciples know that he's not going to be welcomed by the establishment there. And they're like, you know, they tried to take you out last time, Lord. Are you sure you want to go back? And they were amazed at Jesus' boldness. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was coming. And we are going to see what's coming, but we have to set our faces like, I, am, I don't like this. I'm not looking forward to this, but I know 